in August uh, when Hurricane Harvey came ashore in Rockport, Texas. Came in with a fury. Came in not once, but twice. The storm back went back out into the open waters and reloaded and came ashore again. It rained 56 inches in three days' time in South Texas. We were in Victoria County, and we went to the, as we do, go to the county seat, talk to the emergency officials, show them our badges, one person after another, and it's bedlam. These people haven't slept, emergency managers, officials, the mayors, the police, the fire. They haven't slept in 48 hours, 50, 60 hours. We were going back to the car, and a phone rang and said, Are you the Mennonites? Yes. Can you come back here? Yes. We wind our way back down through City Hall in Victoria, Texas, down into the bowels of the Emergency Operations Center. And the officials just pointed at us and said, Go through that door. We went through the door, and there sat two people at their desk and computers with their heads in their hands, barely looked up at us and said, Are you the Mennonites? Yes. What are your capabilities? Oh, I said, we're Mennonite Disaster Service. We can bring in volunteers that are self-contained. And we have front-end loaders. We have tarping. We can you know, make the houses safe, sound, and secure. Chainsaw work. Well, how much do you charge? <laughs> no, we're volunteer. And then the gentleman looked up at me. First time that I saw his face, tear-stained eyes. He says, can you help my people? Well, yes, of course. Follow me. I often say in those moments, one should almost take your shoes off because we're on holy ground, being led by the winds of the Spirit. So we followed Danny, and there was a small community called Bloomington, Texas. Soon people started coming up to us. One lady rolled down her window and cried out, I need infant formula for my children. Another person called out, we need water. Another person called out, I need gas for my generator. Need to keep the insulin cool, diabetes. This community had been forgotten about. Trying to regain my composure on the phone, called back to the headquarters and said, we found it, we found it. Send them in. Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Harrison Horst. I'm Michaela Mast. And I'm Sarah Longenecker, producer and web designer. I'll be popping in at the end of today's episode. Thanks for joining us. This episode will be all over the map with our stories. West Virginia, Texas, Nepal. But they all have one thing in common. Floods. As we drove to West Virginia, the first wave of Hurricane Florence was hitting the Carolinas. When we got there, 
We found that they were prepared. They knew what heavy rains could do to their homes. Last Friday night, with this threat of this hurricane Florence, we were almost to the point of evacuating, getting to high ground. We just finished eating lunch. Like I told you, I have the problems with storms when they come. Spanakopita, gyros, and french fries, a surprisingly Greek meal for this corner of West Virginia. The name is Yasu Restaurant. The restaurant we were in is called Yasu Restaurant, the only restaurant in the town of Kimball. And it means it's a contracted sentence or phrase, Stini Yasu, but that means to your health. It's owned by Markella Jeanette, chef, firefighter, hairdresser, grandmother, and storyteller. And I tell everybody, not healthy food, good food, but not healthy food. (laughs) Makala's restaurant sits just a few miles away from Bob and Linda, the food pantry owners featured in episode two. Randy and Joan Green from episode one live just down the road in the other direction. We hadn't gone far. Also a few miles away the day before. (laughs) My name is... Michael Jackson. <laughs> no, my name is Bobby Reed, and we're in Maybury, West Virginia. Our visit with Bobby was unexpected. We had stayed at the Swap House the night before. Swap is short for sharing with Appalachian people, and joined one of their work teams for the day. You can hear them rebuilding Bobby's porch in the background. Should I say the metropolitan area of downtown Maybury, West Virginia? <laughs> We met Bobby, asked him for an interview, and ran back to the house to grab the sound equipment when he agreed. Which is part of the uh, poverty-stricken West Virginia, which always ranks last. Then we sat down with him at his dining room table and talked. It's not the way people want to portray it. Bobby grew up in McDowell, but he left for college. And when he returned, it was his family that brought him back. Why did you come back? Lived in Orlando for 15 years. My parents got older, and they'll come down. They'll stay a month or two. Got to go back home. For what? All of us are here in Orlando. Mm -hmm. And and as they got older, we all moved back here to this area. Mm -hmm. And it was good that we did. It was, I've been here two weeks before the, I don't know if you all heard about the floods mm-hmm. that hit this area. Yes. It was 2001, a Sunday morning in July. On the morning of the first flood, 2001, um, we are a fire department family, and so we had gotten a call for high water rescue at Land Raft, which is three or four miles. My mother called me early that morning. She said, Bobby, the creek is rising. My parents lived in Keystone. And so we came down here to try and help my parents get out and get their car out and so forth. And my son and I ended up getting trapped down here. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we have the creek right across the road here. Mm -hmm. He was helping me put sandbags out front. And this so-called wall of water came down the road. And he got caught in the current, and I grabbed him by, like, his shirt and pulled him back in to this little porch. And so I said, I'll be down in a few minutes. I got dressed and got down. I said, I looked. And I noticed as I was going down, it was everywhere. And my husband came down the road in a fire truck, and he was yelling to us to go upstairs. And I said, pull the truck over here and get us. We can't get out. And he said, get upstairs. Well, I knew that meant something evident was happening. About an hour later, water came through their house. Oh, my leg. Just high. Oh, my <laughs> so up to your kitchen sink in here. 
higher. And I didn't know for a couple of weeks that Current was pushing that fire truck down the road. Well, it was like being in a movie because it came so quick. Yeah. He did not have complete control of that truck. The water current was pushing him down the road. He ended up on the hill up here. F-150s, F-350s, trucks, you know, expeditions. Hmm. They picked up and floated down about a half a mile to where the trussle blocked the water, the railroad trussle. And they were bouncing around and looked like toys in a bathtub. When we got to the back where the steps go up, we were in water chest high. And I realized that I had not taken anything upstairs. <laughs> you know, hitting off each other and bouncing back. But that's, that's the kind of scene that was. And when I got back, coming back downstairs, all I could see was the top step of the second flight of steps. So there was seven and a half feet of water down here, right, right where we're sitting. Uh, heartbreaking, is <laughs> guess the word to say. And I sat on that platform and cried because I knew everything down here was destroyed. This is where I grew up. This is where I toddled. This is all I knew as far as a home. It was just total destruction for the area. When we were in McDowell County, most people had a flood story to tell. It took months and many extra hands to pick up the shambles. And so after the first flood, you got this place built up again. And then you said it wasn't, uh, it was right before it reopened. Yes. 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 My parents owned a little building next door and I had planned to put a little sandwich shop in there in order to help fund the refurbishing and make this a restaurant. And um, in April of that year, my dad passed away from complications of Alzheimer's and bacterial pneumonia from being in the water. Mm -hmm. Um, In May, less than a month later, a second more devastating flood hit the area and knocked my little building off of its foundation and had to be destroyed, torn down. And I'm back to square one now with no plan. Did a lot of people choose to leave rather than rebuild? Yes. The folks that thought they could make it after the first time, after the second time, it was like, you know, we're done with this. Standing on the front porch of Yasu Restaurant, you can begin to picture the damage water could do. There are a number of steep embankments close by, including one just across the road, and it doesn't help that the mountain's natural barriers for flooding have been tampered with in so many places. And what, a, what about this area and the landscape makes the flood so bad? Well, it's kind of, if you think about a funnel, uh-huh. and pouring water in a funnel, we're kind of at the bottom end of that funnel because of the creek and this is the, this is the watershed part. Right. Bobby's house is nestled right into a valley next to that creek. And he's concerned because just last month, they started mining on the hill right above his house. Oh, yeah. yeah, but what the way they're blasting, if they don't reclaim the land and do like they're supposed to, replant the trees, which they aren't gonna do, this whole area will flood out like this. And I mean, it'll just wipe it out. And this is an opinion only. I feel like that the uh, logging has a lot to do with it. I also feel like the gas wells. Some of these things obviously have to be done. Mm-hmm but it needs to be regulated like the strip mining is regulated. They have to plant trees back. They have to do the drainage and all that. And I feel like that we need to do some regulating with the other things to maybe stop some of the water. It seems like the people of McDowell County have a lot going against them, but they're tired of being portrayed as victims. And after visiting, we agree. That's an unfair portrayal. 
Because the people here have persisted over and over again through thick and a lot of thin. And how do they do it? For those that we met, it comes from a strength rooted in faith. One of my favorite scriptures is from 2 Corinthians 12, chapter, verse 9. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In November, the year after we opened the second time, my husband was calling me and he would say, there's flash flood warnings, you need to get stuff moved to high ground. And I went outside in desperation, I think, and I'd gone over to the creek bank. And I remember holding my hands out like this and it just pouring rain and I remember thinking, Lord, I can't keep doing this. If it's meant for me to stay here, help me. If it's meant for me to leave it behind, take my hand and show me the way. Either way, Lord, I can't do it without you. Show me the way. And then I realized it had stopped raining. And I looked above my head and the most beautiful rainbow I had ever seen came across the sky. His grace is sufficient. No matter what we're going through, no matter what we have to go through, His grace is sufficient. Fortunately, McDowell County hasn't seen a flood that bad since 2002, and it's hard to know if they can be attributed to climate change at all. And yet unpredictable weather is something people mentioned everywhere we went, in Virginia, West Virginia, and across the Midwest. There are more hurricanes, more floods, more fires, less snow here, more rain there. A few weeks ago, it was 60 degrees Fahrenheit in Virginia, in the middle of December. So I often wonder, is it just a product of our imagination, or paranoia the more we hear about climate change, or attunement to single days and weeks instead of patterns? Who better to ask than someone who has spent much of his life responding to natural disasters? I often say you don't want me to come to your community now because it meant you had a disaster. <laughs> so I promise not to stay too long here in Harrisonburg <laughs> today. <laughs> this is Kevin King, Executive Director of Mennonite Disaster Service. Mennonite Disaster Service is a volunteer network of the Anabaptist churches that responds to disasters in Canada and the U.S. As it turns out, they were actually involved in the cleanup process in McDowell County after both floods. MDS also responds to natural and man-made disasters in the Protectorate of the U.S., which includes Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and some islands in the Pacific like Saipan and Chuuk. MDS started in 1950 in a response to conscientious objectors coming back from the, doing alternative service in the war and said, wow, this thing called service to our fellow man, that's amazing. Can we continue that? So as they moved back to their home communities in a Sunday school picnic in Kansas, one Sunday afternoon people said, look, there's disasters all around us. Let's organize. So that was the official beginning of MDS back in 1950. Mm. So that's uh, how it all started. Grassroots people's movement. 
Kevin started at MDS in 2004, and at that point he had already been working in disaster areas for 20 years with Mennonite Central Committee and other organizations. So he's well versed in the field. Can you give us kind of a, a bird's eye view of where disasters are occurring and how that has changed in the last 14 years or even, even longer since no, it's you've, a good been, question. you've been involved in this work for 30 years basically now? I am more I am more aware of it can speak more about the domestic US Canada in the I could talk about the last 15 years that I've seen a noticeable increase in disasters. When I started 15 years ago with Mennonite Disaster Service in any given year there'd be 3 to 4 what I call major disasters. In other words more than just a couple barn fires or creek flooding. These were like Greensburg, Kansas tornado, or uh, the Florida hurricanes in 2004. That was big, we thought back then, to have those hurricanes come through Florida. But that was just a warm-up for 2005 Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. There was usually three to four disasters per year. Now, 15 years later, it's not uncommon to have 10 to 15 or 20 major disasters a year. It has tripled or quadrupled uh, the number of disasters. Kevin explained to us that not only are there more natural disasters occurring, the intensity of the disasters is also increasing. They again find themselves in areas they rebuilt 10, 20, or 30 years ago. Just recently, for instance, after Hurricane Florence hit, MDS returned to a home in South Carolina that they had rebuilt and elevated in 1999 to see that it had taken on two feet of water. So how does the trajectory of the last few years um, and the increase in intensity and number of disasters, how does that impact the planning that you all do in Mm -hmm. MDS for the coming years? Good question. We realized that from a binational office in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, we cannot do it alone or respond alone. We're having to get back again to our basics, and that is equip the local units And it means also thinking outside the box in new manners and methods of responding to disasters. Like what? So we say, oh, then we'll bring the disaster to you. What? Can you build a house on your church parking lot? And they're doing that. Just last Friday, we built, uh, volunteers came and framed up a house for Texas on our parking lot at Mennonite Disaster Service. The increase of disasters also represents a serious logistical issue for MDS. They've had to quadruple the number of staff just to keep up. And because of the repetitive losses suffered by the communities they work with, Kevin says that MDS is planning on introducing more mitigation projects moving forward. Mitigation, that is preventing disasters from increasing even more or creating more harm. So we have some models that that's happening. In West Virginia, Rather than going back in and cleaning out the homes along the creek there in White Sulphur Springs, thanks to a number of partners and funding, we've moved quite a number of people from the flood-swollen and flood-plone area out of that area and created it to a park and moved them up onto higher ground and created a Hope Village. And in the town you heard about at the beginning of the episode, Bloomington, Texas, they're doing the same. So as disasters occur more frequently, MDS is looking at how they can reduce the risk of repeated loss. Otherwise, they'll be back cleaning out the same house. It just doesn't make sense. 
So if we're talking about mitigation, about how to prevent disasters from increasing, I guess my question is, is it possible to unite in our efforts without agreeing on the cause and urgency of climate change? Um, from my experience and also lots of stories we've heard, especially in West Virginia, for instance, McDowell County, people, like, barriers between people fall immediately when exactly. disaster yeah. occurs. And then on the other hand, we talk, of, we say the words climate change and, like, all of a sudden all these walls fly up mm-hmm. and, you know, it's a very political yeah. term. Yeah. So I'm wondering, at MDS in the headquarters or with the people you speak with is mm-hmm. is climate change part of the conversation or like do you feel like it needs to be or yeah it's kind of a middle certainly question. in Mennonite Disaster Service mm-hmm. as a volunteer network we have it's not all Mennonites that come to work and as we know within the Anabaptist Church we don't all agree but in Mennonite Disaster Service Although we may not agree about the cut of our cloth or how to baptize or even what gender can be in the behind the pulpit, but we can agree to put on somebody's roof. And that's the beautiful thing to come together. We don't even agree about climate change, but more and more I have seen we are agreeing that the climate is changing. There's a bit of a nuance there. What we haven't agreed on is how or why, but at least acknowledge the severity and the frequency. Just the numbers I gave from three of 15 years ago to 15 now, natural disasters. Hello, something's happening. The international equivalent of MDS is Mennonite Central Committee, or MCC, and last fall we were fortunate enough to hear firsthand some of the ways that they're already doing climate relief work. As children in the morning and evening we had to collect fodder, grass for the cattle, and support our parents in the weekend working in the farms. This is Durga, and he works for MCC in Kathmandu, Nepal, though he grew up in the mountains. Most of the things we produce were vegetables for for own use. We were just um, intensive farmers who, who grow the food for the family, not for commercial purpose, not for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so my connection, my relationship with Earth is um, very, very, what is that called in English? I mean, very, <laughs> very strong relationship, as I say. Really, it helps you to understand if I say a story. Durga was 11 years old and in grade 6 when a heavy hailstorm swept through the area. Our school was with this metal corrugated, corrugated. Yeah, corrugated yeah. metal seats and makes a lot of sound, you know. <laughs> and it was very, very heavy sound. And uh, 
the students were, I mean, children, my friends were very excited to see the big hells, big hailstones and collecting them and cold and that. But I was very worried about our farm. It was corn season, and the corn was just coming up, less than a foot tall. Hail could do severe damage to such a young crop. Those big hails affect a lot. Mm-hmm. That means we will not get food in the, in the harvest season. Durga explained that many people in this area have a close connection with the earth, and so they are also very aware of the way the earth is changing. There are Himalayas, all from east to west in Nepal, and the Himalayas, the snow is melting in many places, and the snow line is going up and up. Mm-hmm. And that affects the water availability for the people in whole South Asia. Agriculture in Nepal is also highly dependent on regular monsoon season, a period of heavy rains. When Durga was a child, it lasted for a full three to four months. But nowadays, sometimes it doesn't rain until the end of July. So the season is sifting. And the other thing is, it doesn't rain for three months. The monsoon is shorter. It's two, three weeks to one month, or sometimes it's five, six weeks. And in a short period of time, they have to finish all the work. And sometimes it's, it rains too much. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to manage the too much water flow. And due to this uh, water and rainfall pattern change, uh, what happens is a lot of frequent disasters. In the mountainside, a lot of uh, landslides. Our mountains are really steep. Not like hills here, <laughs> very <laughs> steep and much like that blocks the roads and uh, causes damage in houses and many things. And so the snow line is changing, resulting in insufficient water supply. The monsoon season is unpredictable, making planting much more difficult, and food security has become an issue for farming communities and the cities that they supply. But of course, that's not all. Durga's story wouldn't be complete without mention of the devastating floods in 2017. The whole southern plain from east to west was flooded, and mostly the eastern part was affected very, very. So many people were affected. I can share one story from one farmer who shared with me. In August last year, the devastating flood came, and his farm was totally covered by mud and sand. So he, his, all the crops were, were covered. He could not harvest it. The family lost their house and almost everything that they possess, blankets, warm clothes and everything. And in the winter, in December and January, it was really, really cold there. So the family suffered a lot due to the cold. MCC provided clothes and blankets to many families in the area and even supported some families in reconstructing their homes, providing some basic construction materials. Uh, in that flood last year, uh, 141 people died. More than 170 people were injured. About 600,000 people had to displace for some weeks because the total the area was flooded. About 200,000 people completely lost their houses in Nepal alone. Almost 2 million homes were damaged or destroyed in all of South Asia. Compare this to the devastation of Hurricane Florence this past fall in North America, where just 30,000 homes were damaged or destroyed. I think Paul writes in Romans, the whole creation is groaning 
and that I see the atmosphere is growing. It has impact. When I see these uh, landslides, floods, the creation in my country is growing. And when it is growing, it affects the people. As Durga witnesses the groaning of creation all around, he's motivated to act for the sake of his people. He shared familiar words with us from Micah 6.8 as an encouragement and challenge. What God requires of you is to love mercy, to do just, and to walk with God humbly. So it, it always encourages me to talk about and to be careful about justice. Whatever I'm doing, does that, um, is it just, is it affecting others or is it just, if I, I'm, resor- I mean, I'm using resources, sometimes we think that using resources is my right, but when I use my right, is it affecting to others' right negatively? In a way, I think the stories in this episode hold a glimmer of hope for us, even amidst the destruction of the floods in McDowell County and the mountains of Nepal, the shores of Texas. I think these stories show us an imagination, a what could be of our future as a church. I'm reminded of a quote from another one of our interviews, Karina Gore. She told us, if church communities go to these places on the front lines of ecological devastation and wait for God in those locations, then there's going to be a miraculous result. But maybe going to the front lines of ecological devastation means more than repairing homes in the wake of natural disaster. Maybe it also means questioning government policies or examining our own individual practices. The effects of climate change shouldn't be the only thing that alarms us. The root causes of climate change are just as alarming. Wastefulness, overconsumption, lack of gratitude and domination, these are words we use to talk about sin, and they're at the heart of our current environmental crisis. What would disaster response look like if we considered all of climate change a disaster? As Michaela said to Kevin earlier, when disaster strikes, the walls come tumbling down. These are the times when communities truly come together, and I think that should give us a measure of hope as we turn to face climate change together, arm in arm. But I think it also comes with a warning. Will we be the type of church that comes together only in the aftermath of devastation? Or will we be proactive in recognizing our participation in the cause of those very disasters? Something we appreciated about our stay at SWAP was their approach to community building and their emphasis on shared experience. Everybody learns when we come together. We want to carry that with us out of this episode, 
So we're ending with one last story, again from Markella, the Greek restaurant owner. Now, when we went in the house, we saw his Legos. And the first thing he said to me was, not my Legos. And I said, oh, yeah. And there was a big melted pile of plastic. He walked off. Markella was with her five-year-old grandson walking through their home, which had recently burned to the ground. Hair all burn off of it and everything. And he said, Not my favorite stuff, Scooby. And I said, I told you everything. And so he went through the house some more and looked at things. And then he went downstairs and saw the pile of ashes from the rocking chair. And he said, Not my favorite rocking chair, too. And I said, I told you everything. And he said, Well, I've seen enough and I'm ready to go now. I said, Okay. So he turned to walk out of the house and he turned back to me and he said, You know what, yeah, yeah. And I said, What? He said, I'm so glad you went home. And I said, yeah, me too, and I'm glad you were over here too. Markella told us that living through disasters has changed her perspective on life. She said that after two floods and a fire, things that used to feel important have become far more trivial. And maybe to borrow from a 2016 Josh Fox film, that's one more thing that climate change is beginning to teach us, how to let go of the world and love the things the climate can't change. And one of the things that struck me when I went in the house to start with was the melted pile of videotapes that were my son and my grandson. And I was just to pieces over that. And then all of a sudden it hit me, well, I have them. And I have the memories, but I'd rather have that or those videotapes. And those videotapes became less important to me. We have a um, wall hanging, and it said the most important things in life are not things. And that's a special bond between me and this grandson because he and I understand this perfectly. Shifting Climates is produced in collaboration with Sarah Longnecker, who is also our photographer and web designer. Theme music is by Jesse Rice and Madeline Miller. Credits music is by Luke Mullet, and transition music is by Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and John Bishop. Special thanks to the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, who is sponsoring this project. And a big thank you to our unsung heroes for the week, Peg and Lee Martin, the site coordinators at SWAP. Peg and Lee helped line up almost all of our interviews in West Virginia and warmed up dinner for us when we returned late. You can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com. We have photo essays that go along with each episode and a ton of resources, as well as previews of episodes to come. Okay, so I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Akila Mast. See you next week.